What's up, Crossroads? Hey, turn with me if you have your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7. Uh, my name is Brandon Hurth. I'm one of the pastors here. And you know what? I've been taking a little heat lately, so I'm just going to, it's confession time right here to start us off. Uh, confess your sins to one another, right? My house is already decorated for Christmas. I'm telling you right now, the tree is up. Coco's been drunk. The songs have been sung. The lights are illuminated. Smiles larger than life. Did I hear some groaning out there? Did I hear a hallelujah? Was that possible? Come on. I've always been like a December 15th. You get 10 days to enjoy that tree and then it's coming down. But I don't know. I'm coming over to the dark side and I'm learning something. I'm going to share with you guys what I'm learning here. Christmas celebration is kind of like a buffet, right? You can keep coming back for as many courses as you like. If you show up early, you just get to go more trips. You get to sing the songs extra times. You get to marvel at the lights extra days. I'm looking. There's a, there's a few people saying yes, but there's a lot of like, this, this sale is not happening, Brandon. <laughs> All right. We are in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, this is affectionately known as the Sermon on the Mount. We are coming towards the end here. And we've been going for the last couple of months. And I don't know if you're like me, but as we've traveled through it, it's been, um, it's been great. It's also been challenging. Jesus lays out some hard words here. And there's a part of me that even listening to the accumulation of all of this, it's like, who can do all of this, Lord? This is a tough call. Last week, no judging. When we started the sermon, it was poor in spirit, meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, peacemakers. That's just the first couple of verses in this thing. And then it goes on. No retribution. Turn the other cheek. No lust. No anger. No worry. Then it just kind of drops that clincher in Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's a high calling. It's a real calling. Things were to ascribe to. And here's the beauty of our passage today, though. The beauty of how Jesus starts to kind of wrap up this whole sermon and bring it to conclusion. It's telling us that we have someone who's ready to help us in all these things. We have a God who wants to help us to walk into all of these realities. We aren't on our own. Ask, seek, knock, and everyone will receive, find, be welcomed. We'll unpack what this means more in a second here, but I just want to say this is encouraging. It's encouraging that the God of this universe doesn't just like lob out these commands and leave us to kind of flounder trying to live them out ourselves. It's encouraging that he not only comes and lives them perfectly on our behalf, praise God, but also that we get to participate in the kingdom and walk these out and that he's right there helping us to do that. Anytime we ask, knock and seek. So if you were to kind of boil down this whole section of text, the main point here today is be persistent in prayer. Why? Because we have a faithful father who's ready to help us. Be persistent in prayer because we have a faithful father who's ready to help us. So with that, let's stand for the reading of God's word. If you are willing and able, we like to stand out of respect for God's words. Matthew 7, starting in verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, 
the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you, though, then you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more so will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. You can grab a seat. I know this is a very familiar passage to many of us. Many of us have heard this several times, and one of the things that can happen with that familiarity is it's almost like we put this transparency over the top of the passage, and it's maybe shaped by our theology or our experiences, but it begins to color how we're actually hearing the words of Jesus. And I think of a couple different sides, uh, groups of people here that this passage might um, be dealing with that transparency issue. For some, we're big time believers that people are good. And now you've got Jesus saying, you, though you are evil. And you're like, boy, I struggle with that a little bit. Or on the other side of the equation, maybe it's someone who says, I have no problem realizing that people are evil. I've experienced the atrocities that humans commit to one another. And for me, it's that word father. And that God would ascribe himself as being a father is really hard for me because of the wounds that I carry from my own father. If that's you in one of those two camps, I wanna encourage you just to sit in the discomfort a little bit and try to wrestle as we go through. What is Jesus saying here? What are maybe my lenses that are starting to shape this a little bit? So we said that the main point of this passage is be persistent in prayer because he's a faithful father. So today, how are we gonna attack this? We're gonna take the first part right there and we're gonna go after be persistent in prayer. And then we're gonna take a pause. I'll tell you more about that in a little bit. And later, we're gonna end by just looking at the faithfulness of the Father, okay? Be persistent in prayer, halftime, faithfulness of the Father. Hey, you guys aren't used to hearing the word halftime in a sermon. I saw people pop up, just, it's coming. It's gonna be a halftime, I promise. Be persistent in prayer, let's start there. Ask, seek, knock. We can't see it in English, but these are commands. These aren't requests. These are commands in the Greek. It's not if you seek, if you ask here. These are imperatives. They're commands. I had originally written this, um, we should be persistent in prayer. No, the way this is written is ask, exclamation point. Seek, exclamation point. Knock, exclamation point. These are perfect imperatives. If I can just look at the Greek for one more second here, that means that it starts now, but it just continues on into the foreseeable future. It's persistent prayer, unceasing prayer. I've got a two-year-old that uh, is loads of joy. Addie Joy, that's her middle name even, Joy, and she is so much fun, uh, but we are also in a little bit of a phase (laughs) that makes me just like wanna pull my hair out. And I'm a little insecure whether you're laughing because you have two-year-olds or because it looks like I've already done that. She just sits up there in her room and we put her down or we tell her to do something and she just sits there, maybe it's for a nap, and she says, I need something! I need something! Over and over and over again on repeat. I need something! And if you go up there and you're like, Addie, Addie, what do you need? She says, something. (laughs) This passage here is God's way of saying, bug me, 
Pester me with your requests. Don't stop. Be relentless. I may be trying to curb this behavior in my children, but God is trying to elicit it in his. I truly believe ask, seek, knock is one of the highest forms of worship. It's a declaration when we knock on heaven's door that we're dependent, that we don't have it all together, that we're not God. And it's also a recognition of his capacity to meet those needs. Ask, seek, knock is worship for us. And the crazy part, God promises that he's gonna answer. When we knock, he's gonna answer that door. When we seek, we're gonna find. When we ask, we're gonna receive. God is promising to answer these requests with a yes. That's a bold promise that's pretty unparalleled in the ancient world. I love that we serve a God who's willing to lay out big promises. But before everyone has visions of like stacking gold bars like dominoes and like tipping them over and with your washboard abs and your flawless skin, I wanna pop that bubble just for a second here. What kind of promises is God, in, is God saying that he will answer with a yes? A few years back, um, I sat in a room wasn't at Crossroads, and there was a preacher, and the preacher got up, and he said, first thing, he just said, hey, how many of you ever prayed a prayer, and, the answer, and God answered it with a no? And almost every hand went up in the room, and then he said, are you guys even Christians? And he cited this verse, and he said, if you ask, you're gonna receive. And this preacher went on to tell all these stories of bold prayers that had been answered, and I think it was really well-meaning, but I also worry that there's a lot of Christians who already look at verses like this and we question, what am I doing wrong? Does God not love me enough? Am I not really a Christian? Or maybe is Christianity itself not really true because I prayed a prayer and I gotta know. Folks, let me tell you, Jesus himself prays a prayer in the garden that doesn't get answered with a yes. So if you would raise your hand to that question, you're in pretty good company. Don't fall into the danger of making prayer all about us. That if we can just do it right, then God has to give us everything that we could ever ask for. Our theology can't reduce God down to a wish-granting genie. It's gotta be bigger than that. God is too huge to be manipulated. Passages like this aren't meant to be law textbooks that try to teach us how to control God into doing what we want him to do. These passages have real promises in them, and I don't wanna downplay that. There is a very real promise here today but I first wanna remind us, we're talking about the God of this universe, the God who breathed out all creation, who holds the seas in the hollow of his hand, who placed the stars into their place, the God who created all, loves all, died for all, and who knows all. We can't lose our place in relationship to him. We don't get to tell him how he has to do everything. I know I'm preaching to the choir for a lot of us, but there's this large school of theology that I think is one of those transparencies that's over this text, and it's that kind of name it and claim it, baby. Whatever you want, you can have. You can force God to give it to you. And this verse is often cited. Honestly, I think it's good news that God doesn't always give us everything we ask for. How many of you guys have ever prayed a dumb prayer before? I pray stupid prayers all the time. I prayed that a girlfriend would cheat on me. 
I prayed that I would go bald. That's a true story. I'm constantly praying for things and then like, God, I don't actually want that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe I'm alone in that, but I am not all-knowing. I want an all-knowing God calling the shots, not my whims and my preferences in the moment. This passage, though, let me just say this. It does clearly say that there are certain, certain prayers that God will always answer with a yes, and it's beautiful. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. The question here isn't about whether God's going to answer it. The question in this passage is what are we seeking? What are we asking for? What are we knocking on? We spent the last couple of months looking at this full sermon of Jesus. And just remember that context is king when you're trying to figure out what a passage means. And so what is the Sermon on the Mount as a whole about? The kingdom. It's about the kingdom of God. The whole sermon is on the kingdom, kingdom ethics. What do the ideal citizens of the kingdom look like? Any hope I have, um, let me say, let me actually say, if you're at Crossroads for any amount of time, more than just even this sermon, I hope that you guys know too, the kingdom is more than just a set of truths that we believe. It's more than just justification by faith alone, as wonderful as that is and as true as it is. The kingdom is also a real reality that's breaking into our lives, breaking into our city, breaking into our world, bringing shalom to chaos. And it's an upside down kingdom, a kingdom that's not centered on health and wealth, like some preachers preach, but it's a kingdom that's centered on the king. The kingdom of God is not about, the kingdom of God is not about becoming a king, but it's about becoming more like our king. It's not about elevating our status, but laying our status down for others. It's not about getting a life, but it's about giving up our lives for something bigger than ourselves. What are we to ask for? Which kingdom are we to try to build? Ours or his? It's in this very sermon what we're to ask for. Chapter six, verse 33. Seek first what? kingdom and his righteousness. That's what we're seeking. That's what we're knocking for. That's what we're asking for. What percentage of our prayers, though, Crossroads, would we say is about his kingdom? And what percentage is about this life, this world, our kingdom? What we worry about, what we pray about, I think, reveals a lot about what we treasure most. It tells us what kingdom we're seeking and who the king of that kingdom is. We go on, we didn't read this part, but in verse 13 and 14 of our chapter here, chapter seven, it says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and a few find it. What are you trying to find? Are we seeking the narrow road or are we consumed with just getting a few steps further down the broad road? And how do we get further down that path? If we take inventory of the information that we seek out, what are we trying to learn? What are we trying to grow in? The direction we invest our money and our time and our energy and our effort, is it narrow road or is it wide road in terms of orientation? God says when you pray prayers that are kingdom prayers, oriented around him and his kingdom, 
how to help walk out those kingdom realities, God says, I'm down. The answer is always yes, 100% of the time. And of course the answer is yes. Can you guys think of a reason why God wouldn't help us accomplish the things that he's asked us to do? When have you ever prayed for strength to love somebody really well and God's like, mm, not gonna help you with that? I uh, had a class my freshman year of college and the professor was a quirky guy, really quirky. And he got up one day and he said, 15 to 20 page paper due Monday. And then he sat down and we all sat there like, okay, on what? And uh, eventually one student raised their hand and they're like, what do you want the paper on? And he goes, stop it. Stop it right now. And his student's like, oh, okay, okay. He's like, stop playing that game where you wanna know exactly what I want and then you can try to give me what I want. And he said, I'll tell you what, it's 15 to 20 pages, it's due on Monday. I'm not gonna tell you what it's on, but it, I know what I want and it better be that. <laughs> and he left. <laughs> Folks, God isn't like this. Understatement of the year, maybe. He isn't giving us commands and then refusing to give us the assistance needed to accomplish them. Right now, Scripture says, right now, in this moment, Jesus is standing at the right hand of the throne of God and he's interceding on our behalf. All throughout Scripture, we see a God who is quick to forgive, zealous to help, eager to encourage. James puts it this way, if anyone lacks wisdom... What should they do? Ask God and he will consider the request. Weigh if you've been really faithful and earned this thing. No, it says if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. God gives lavishly to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. When would God deny your request to love somebody well, to confess well, to have humility, to pursue reconciliation, to Demonstrate hospitality. Exemplify the fruit of the Spirit. The problem is we often seek and ask for things that are the antithesis of the kingdom. We ask for things that are all about me. James goes on a little bit further in that part and he says, you ask and you don't receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives. You ask not for the kingdom, but you ask so that you can spend it on your own pleasures. This isn't some name it and claim it passage here we're looking at today for asking for whatever we want. It's an invitation from God to ask for help living into all that the kingdom is. And it's accompanied with a promise that the answer to that prayer always will be yes. If you don't believe me, look at Luke 11. It doesn't say, it's talking about the same part of Matthew that we're reading. And it says, and you will receive it's not talking about anything. It says, and you will receive the Holy Spirit to help you do these things. This isn't about God honoring all my requests. It's about the Spirit empowering us to live kingdom lives. So what should we be praying for? There's so much, even in this series that we've been looking at, even in the Sermon on the Mount, there's so many things that we could be asking God for help in. The Lord's Prayer, it's a good place to start. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
Maybe it's that the Beatitudes would be true of us. That when others look at us, they'd see a group of peacemakers, humble, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, meek. Maybe it's that we won't be so quick to be judgmental. Maybe it's that we'll be faithful to God, that we'll treat others the way that we want to be treated. I hope that it encourages us that we have a God who's ready to help us do those things. He's not against us. He doesn't hand out those challenges and then just say, figure it out. It's all up to you. So what does it look like to add a time of praying these kingdom virtues into your weekly, daily prayer rhythms? So when you pray for your friends or spouses or family members or kids or whoever, that you would pray that God would shape them and mold them into upside-down kingdom people, people who live for a kingdom other than this world. In fact, let's just pause right here. Let's just start. Let's take half time. It's maybe breaking some kind of sermon protocol here, but it just seemed really weird and maybe fundamentally wrong to get up here and talk for 40 minutes on prayer and not actually take time to stop and do it. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna give you guys a second to read through a slide that I've got that has just a few of the values. I, I, I started going through and listing them all, but it would take too long to read through the whole Sermon on the Mount. And so I just put up a slide of the Beatitudes. And I know it's maybe a little non-traditional, maybe a little uncomfortable. It's, it's much safer just to sit and listen to a sermon. But Christianity is not a spectator religion. And Sunday mornings at Crossroads have never been a spectator sport. So I want you to go through this and maybe think through where are the areas that you need a little help from God in walking out these kingdom ethics. Maybe you wanna write out a prayer. Maybe you wanna pray silently. Maybe you wanna shout it out. I'm not scripting this. I have no expectations on this time. This is you and God, but I wanna give you three to four minutes here to ask, to seek, and to knock.
God, I'll just start with myself. I look at this list and I need your help. God, I need your help to walk into these. I need your help, Lord. I, I pray for all of us in this room that we would be people that when we wake up, the first thoughts that we have are on your kingdom and how we can live that out in this day that you've given us. Just confess that so often my thoughts are on the kingdoms of this world. God, help us to be humble, to mourn well, to be meek, to hunger and thirst for your righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers, Lord. And let that reality in our lives and when it's walked out daily, influence and impact this entire city and help bring your kingdom in greater force to Grand Rapids and beyond. Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. It's halftime. You go back, you look at what's working, what's not, you drop some new plays, you talk it through, and this is a chance for us to assess. Where do we need to work? Where do we need God's help getting these kingdom realities a little deeper? So I wanna read our passage again before we look at the second half of our text. Verse seven, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. To the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more so will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? All this week I've been wrestling with a question. And this question just keeps coming up to me. If people looked at how I spent all the hours in my life, if someone witnessed how I responded in times of stress and need, if those are the only two pieces of information that they had about me, would they conclude that I'm a person of prayer, dependent on the Lord? I've been asking myself, why don't I seek more? And perhaps it's just me, but why is it that in prayer I tend to, I tend to run to prayer after I've exhausted all my other efforts first? It's the thing that I turn to when something's completely outside of my control. Like faithfulness to God means fixing every single thing that you can on your own so that you have to bother God as little as humanly possible. What crowds out our desires to seek, ask, and knock more? I'm gonna give you a few of my thoughts, but before we do, I just wanna give you a second to think. What holds you back maybe from asking, seeking, and knocking on God's door a little more? been thinking about this, and I came up with six or seven answers. We don't have time, so I'm going to share three reasons with you, okay? Three reasons, um, and that last one's going to take us right into our final section. Reason number one, I think, that many of us don't seek and ask and knock with the persistence that God is talking about here. Reason number one, we're too proud. We're too proud. We prize self-sufficiency in America. We encourage it, we foster it. And it takes real humility to say, I need, 
to ask, to knock and say, I can't open this door myself. You're going to have to open it for me. Self-made man, live your truth. You do you. I'm going to be me. All these are cultural statements that are praised and prized. Think about one of the top self-help tips of all time. Thing that is in so many things right now, the power of positive thinking. You have the power to literally think things into existence and realities in your life. The law of attraction. The Bible has a different word for us. The Bible says the way up is down. Those who humble themselves and ask are the ones who receive. Those who admit they have to knock on some doors, they can't just open them themselves. The secret to life isn't in the power of my thinking. The secret to life is dependence. The contentment that flows out of that when we just recognize and realize our own finitude. This is where the developing world has a leg up on all of us. There are people in this world that have to ask every day for something, that are dependent to just get through the day. And here we're so privileged that we've managed to delude ourselves into thinking that we can do it all ourselves. We don't need anyone. Reason number one why we don't seek, I think we're too proud sometimes. To ask means not only to acknowledge our neediness, but to embrace it. That's tough stuff. Reason number two, I think we're too busy asking everywhere else. Seeking different directions, knocking on different doors all over the place. We are all asking, seeking, and knocking all the time. We're all doing it somewhere. It's part of being human. The question is not if we're doing it. The question is where are we doing it? I love the example Jeff Vanderstelt gives when he talks about the fact that we are all perpetually worshiping. He says, worship in our hearts is like a hose that is just always turned on. You can't turn it off. You're always worshiping. The only control you have is where you're going to point it. What door? We're going to knock on some door. What door are we going to choose to knock on? It's a famous quote. It says, every man knocking at the door of the brothel is really knocking for God. And it's ascribed to a number of different authors. I'm not sure who it originally came from, but the point remains true. It's highlighting that the fundamental orientation of the human heart is always to seek God and what only he can give. Peace meaning, significance, belonging, truth. We all have this God-shaped vacuum inside of us that we're created with, that when we chase after anything else, whether it's esteem or romance, riches, power, knowledge, position, we do so seeking God even if we don't realize it. Let me tell you the scary part of that reality is that God sometimes loves us enough to let us have those things. Solomon gets all the way to the end of that road and he's just like, it's meaningless. I've had it all and it's meaningless. And I genuinely think that that is the reason why we are a culture plagued by despair. Everywhere you look, it's just criticism and exhaustion and disappointment. It's because we've barked up the wrong trees and the only thing that we've found is disenchantment. Why don't we seek the kingdom first? Reason number two is because we're too busy building our own. We're knocking everywhere else instead. And reason number three, I worry that we don't trust. We don't really trust. 
Some of us have fathers that we feel like really did give us a snake. And the message of our childhood was you can't trust anyone. It's all on you. You're alone. Don't you dare depend on anyone else. I know a guy who was telling me a story once about how he was watching this kid that was on top of a car. And there was a dad there, and the dad was like desperately trying to coax his son into jumping to him. Like, son, I will catch you. Like, just trust me. I've got you. And this kid was just so timid. And finally, after the dad was able to persuade him, the kid just jumped off the top of the car. And right as he did, the dad took two quick steps back and just let him slam to the ground. And then he stood over the top of his son, and he said, lesson number one, son, don't you dare trust anyone in this life. Look out for number one. Not all of us have such overt, easy to spot experiences like this. But that message has still been incepted into us at some point down the line. If you trust others, you're gonna be disappointed. Look out for number one, because no one else will. And now we're adults. And these messages were seared in and they're ravishing the way that we not only do friendships and marriages and parenting and work, but also how we do prayer. God helps those who help themselves, right? No, not according to this. God helps those who have the humility to ask. We're gonna talk about the type of God, father God is right now, but before we do, I just wanna recognize that for some of us, we've got that transparency over the top of our worldview that just says you can't trust anyone. Maybe even especially fathers. We said early on that the point of this passage was be persistent in prayer because God is a faithful father ready to ask. Let's look at that last part. Faithful father. I have uh, some friends who found out way in advance that their favorite band was coming to Grand Rapids. And they were pumped, they were ecstatic. It was about a year and a half out and they were like, they looked at each other, husband and wife, and they said, we've gotta see them. We've gotta meet our favorite band, like they're our heroes. And so rather than try to like stalk out the hotels and play that, that kind of a chance game, they said the only safe way is for us to play the long game. And they quit their jobs and they started working at the concert venue. It's a true story. True story. And for a year and a half, they worked at this concert venue and they worked hard and they worked their way up and everything was designed to get them in optimal position to spend as much time with their favorite band that they've ever, or as they possibly could. And it worked. After a year and a half, they were like in a spot where they were going to be very close with this band. And so they were nervous, excited, telling everybody how it worked. And they walked up, they knocked on that dressing room door. And they walked in and there was their favorite band and they were utter jerks. <laughs> they hated every second of it. It killed their favorite band rather than was this magical experience. The object of their attention, the object of their asking and their seeking wasn't worth it. Jesus is reminding us here, this will not be our experience with God. The point of this passage isn't that human persistence wins out in the end. The point of this passage is that the Heavenly Father loves His children and will certainly answer their prayers. 
Prayer works because of God, not because of us. The main character, even in prayer, I'm convinced is God, not us. Look at verse nine with me. This is proof. Who's the main character here? Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more so will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? The focus here isn't on us at all. The character is the one, the main character is the one who our prayers are addressed to. What Jesus is doing here is this old rabbinic um, argument from lesser to greater or from lighter to heavy, however it is you want to say it. If even human parents won't do that, they're not going to give their kid a, a stone and watch them chip their tooth on it because they think it's bread. How much more so is God your father not going to do that? The one who knit you together in your mother's womb. The one who knows every cell in your body, every hair on your head, who knows you completely knows every tear you've cried, knows your greatest triumph and your deepest insecurities, do we approach God with the confidence that comes from knowing who he is? Or do we treat him like he's more of a cosmic, far-off judge that we have to prove ourselves to? There are two backbones of the Jewish religious orientation. It's this kind of duality, right? This humbled but exalted. It's a sense of the fragility and the fleetingness, the finitude of human life, and on the other side, the deep significance of human life. In fact, there's this Hasidic adage that you should, every person should walk around with two pieces of paper in their pockets. On one piece of paper, it should say, I am but dust. And on the other piece of paper, it should say, the world has been entrusted I think the real trick is discerning in the moment which pocket to reach into. The first part of this sermon was all about the finitude, the finiteness, our need to be humble and to ask if we're ever to receive. But the second part of the passage reminds us to take that second piece of paper out, that we're made in his image, that we stand as a beloved son or daughter. We sometimes think, I think, that God is so busy being creator, keeping the cosmos in order, dealing with national crises, that he doesn't have time to care about our trivial requests. But I'm pretty convinced of this. If you go all through scripture, God plays a bunch of roles. He's king, he's creator, he's judge, he's all these different things, but I think his favorite role might just be that of father. And we're his children. He loves to hear from us. There's another famous quote that says, the only person who dares wake the king up at 3 a.m. to ask for a drink of water is his children. We have that kind of access. Both pieces of paper are true and are key to prayer. We might be small in the scope of the whole universe. We may have needs, but yet at the same time, we are still incredibly significant to our Father. We have a team that just came back from Zambia. They went to Cure Hospital. And Cure uh, has several hospitals around the globe and they're doing this amazing, incredible work where they're taking childhood deformities and diseases and they're healing them free of charge. And it's an incredible ministry. And one of the stories that our team came back with and they were sharing 
um, just stuck with me. They talked about this father who had a crippled child and who walked all the way, or walked, traversed all the way um, from Zimbabwe to Zambia because they heard about this possible hospital. They had a crippled son, they walked eight or nine hours to the bus to get to the road, and then another eight or nine hours to get to a bus stop, all with a crippled child, this father making the trek, just because he had an ounce of hope. Then he traversed the borders and he showed up at this hospital to see if there was any chance. And the reason that we know about this one is because he approached our team and he said, I have no way to tell my wife whether we've even made it or not. Can I use your cell phone? And he began to communicate with his wife via cell phone. Honey, made it safely. Surgery tomorrow. If you can send some resources, please do. We have no idea how we're even gonna make it home. This father would do anything for his child to be here. That's the picture of a father that I want you to carry with you. That's what our father did for us. He didn't just leave home, but he left the throne of heaven so he could walk the streets of ancient Israel, preach real sermons like this for us to know how to live out kingdom realities. And even more than that, to die the death that we deserve so that we could be healed. so that we could be welcomed into his kingdom. Crossroads, that is the God that we serve. And he's right here, right now, in this moment, saying, seek me and you'll find me. Ask and you'll receive. Knock and I'll open the door for you. Let's do that right now. God, there is no father like you. God, I, I pray that that reality and the fact that you call us to pester you with our requests for holiness would propel us to do just that, Lord. I pray that we would ask, that we would seek, and that we would knock. In fact, right now, God, we just ask that you would make us a community, make us a family that model well your kingdom virtues that reflect your son, that reflect your kingdom to our neighbors. God, you are good. Help us to be persistent. We tend to forget sometimes. Lord, help us for your name and your glory. Amen.